Guys, this is one of those texts where people from very similar theological backgrounds on lots of other issues um, who believe very like-minded will disagree on this issue. So this is one of those texts that when you talk about texts that are predictive of the future and may or may not talk about end times type things, um, people can get really stirred up about this. You may, you may know someone who uh, is that way, who's like very, very committed to their, their view of what's going to happen during the end times. And so there is a lot of disagreement on this text. Um, so I figure it's just best to come out front and say it. Um, because a man who has a very strong view of this is hard to stop. So having said that, um, I want to let you know where I stand on the issue of the end times. Just go ahead and get that out of the way so we can uh, move forward with our understanding of this text as I'm going to present it today. So um, I'm definitely someone who could be described as an amillennial preterist who takes a post-trib view, but I'm very open to historic perspective as long as it's not associated with dispensationalism. So if that, if that made no sense to you, I'm really glad that you're here this morning, and I think this will be a, a good Sunday for you. If, on the other hand, you like understood every single one of those words, and you're one of those people who's super passionate about this, and you're excited that we're talking about this this morning, I would love to like grab coffee or lunch with you sometime and talk about something else, okay? Um, because... This is just one of those issues that, like, I'm not going to say it's not important. We're going to spend a whole Sunday talking about it. It's important. It's in the scripture. But you're, thank you. But you're, uh, that's very affirming. But your, your view of this, your view of end time stuff, it's kind of like the, um, the things Paul mentioned in uh, Colossians chapter 2, where he's talking about dietary laws and people arguing about them and making a big deal about that. And he says, look, those things have the appearance of wisdom, but they're of little value against the battle against the flesh. Um, and so your, your view of this, it matters, it's important, but at the end of the day, it probably has very little value on how you pursue Christ and how you um, go about getting rid of sin in your life, right? And so we're not going to be a church who like, I don't want us to be a church who has camps, right? You guys know what I mean by this, but like, oh, I'm a guy who does this. And that's what we've done with this, these views, right? It's like, so you'll hear people say that, like, oh, I'm a, I'm a pre I'm, they're not just say like, I believe in pre-tribulation. They'll say, oh, I'm pre-trib. I'm totally pre-trib, like, it, like it's a, a noun that identifies them, right? Like, that is who I am. Like, you can just erase my name and just start calling me pre-trib from now on, right? I am pre-trib. I, I am the embodiment, physically, of that ideological belief. I am pre-trib. It's who I am, right? We don't want to be like that. It's not just this issue, right? We don't want to be that way with, with anything, whether it's a theological deal or a political deal, Right? Um, and you see a lot of that, especially in today's society, of this just like, oh, I'm of the camp that I really believe this on this political or, or theological issue. Or I'm in this camp, or I'm in the homeschool camp, or I'm in that camp. And, and we get this, that's the thing, that's what I'm about. Like, our thing and our camp is Christ and him crucified, right? And I want to just say that before we dive deep into this. Like, we're going to maybe disagree on some of this stuff. Christ and him crucified is the camp we're all in, Right? Nothing else is going to divide us on this. Even if you disagree with me on how I go through this passage and interpret it, that's okay. I'm about, full disclosure, I'm about 92% sure, 92.4% sure that my understanding of this is correct. But it's, it's, I'm not like, this is it, right? Um, you may have a different view, and that's okay. So, without further ado, let's, um, let's jump into this. Let me just first explain 
the three different um, approaches to the book of Matthew, okay? I'm um, sorry, not the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24 specifically. There's more than three views on how to interpret this chapter, um, but we're going to kind of consolidate them into three for the sake of time. One is the all-end times approach. There are people who think this whole passage that, that, that uh, Sarah just read is all about Jesus's second coming. Um, I'm I'm not in that camp, um, and here's why. Um, verse 34, along with lots of other verses, talk about this idea of it being a chronological thing, that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So if Jesus says all these things are going to happen, then he says this generation isn't going to pass away until they take place. That seems to me to indicate that all these things he's talking about are going to happen in the very near future um, and not something that happens hundreds or thousands of years later. There's also what I've... Um, dubbed in a very theologically astute term, um, the spiderweb approach, okay? So the spiderweb approach is, is this idea that um, Jesus is talking about both the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the destruction of the temple, and he's also talking about things that happen at the second coming of Christ, and he is interwoven those things where he's just kind of bouncing back and forth, and it's almost impossible to untangle when he's talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and when he's talking about his second coming. And again, the reason I, I shy away from that interpretation is because it seems to me, when you, when you look at it, that there's a very chronological presentation that Christ uses when he goes through this. Um, and then the third approach is the one I'm going to take today, which is the linear approach, which is just this idea that verses essentially 1 through 35, Jesus is talking about a very difficult time that Christians went through in A.D. 65 to 70, culminating in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by Emperor Titus in A.D. 70, that that's what this text is about. And that when you go beyond that, after 35, Jesus is then talking about his second coming. And so to help you understand why I land there, I want to give you a, a quick uh, example. So... Um, Part of the reason I land there is because of the question the disciples ask, right? They ask a very specific question. I feel like Jesus gives a very specific answer. So if you look in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 3, one through three that Sarah read, what you're going to see in 1 and 2 is that the disciples come to Jesus, and they're like, hey, look at the temple. Isn't it awesome? And he's just kind of a killjoy, right? He's like, yeah, it's all going to be torn down. Yeah, I'm not impressed, right? Um, and then in verse 3, they're like kind of bothered by that. So they walk up to him and it says, As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things be? That's the first question. When will these things be? And they ask a second question. And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So, so if you understand that question, it's huge, right? I mean, just imagine for a sec that you dropped into my house and you just overheard a conversation between me and my wife. You just dropped right in the middle of the conversation, and you heard me say something like this, Babe, I'm, I know you're going to be very disappointed when I tell you this, but I really think that at this point I'm done. This is getting really hard. It's harder than I ever imagined it would be when we started this thing. And I'm just ready to call it quits. In fact, I'm, I'm going to go back into the bedroom and start boxing things up. Now, you would think that meant one thing if you didn't know the question. But what if I told you that just before that, my wife had asked me, hey, Kai, are you ever going to finish that jigsaw puzzle in the bedroom? 
right? Like, let's just, it takes a whole completely different meaning when you understand the question, right? So I really do think like the key to understanding this text, a big key to it, is understanding the question that the disciples asked. So they asked two very specific questions. When will these things be, these things being the destruction of the temple that Jesus just referenced, and when, or when, are, when is it that you're going to come back, right? So he's asking two questions. So I think Jesus is giving two answers to the disciples and their questions. And so um, one thing I like to do in here is uh, make sure that the kids are engaged when we have the last Sunday of the month, the younger kids are in here. So I'm going to say, kids, are you listening? And you're going to say, yes, Pastor Kai. Okay, ready? Kids, are you listening? Oh, that was awesome. You guys are great. So I'm going to ask you guys a question, okay? How many of you guys have ever at some point after worship service, maybe on the drive home or maybe at lunch right afterward, and your parents have said some things, how they didn't agree with what was said from the stage on Sunday. Anybody? <laughs> parents are not going to let them raise their hands? No? They got a couple? Okay. Trinity. <laughs> nice. Was your dad preaching that day? <laughs> now, first of all, if you raise your hand, I just want you to know Lance preaches more than anyone, so odds are it was something he said. Um, but here's the cool thing about that, kids, if you did raise your hand, guess what? Your parents are still here today, and that's awesome, right? That we can disagree on some of these things, and it's okay. And you know what? Kids, like, your job isn't to come in here and every word someone speaks from the stage automatically believe it to be true, but God has given us his word, and he's given us our minds to be able to read and discern and listen carefully to what others say and evaluate whether or not we think that is true. And so there may be times where there may be some disagreements there, but that's okay, all right? So when we walk through this text, it's okay if you or your parents don't fully agree with what Pastor Kai is saying today because we have the gospel in common, and we're not going to let those things divide us. All right, so without further ado, we're going to walk through this, and this is going to be, this is going to feel a lot more like a, a course, like a seminary class, than it is a sermon for parts of it this morning. So, kids, if you're still listening, good. All right, well, good luck with this. Okay, so the first section, we just see this, this idea of there's going to be intense persecution. Matthew 24, 4 through 14, 4 through 14. This description of this really intense persecution the church is going to go through. So, if you know anything about church history, right up until the point of A.D. 70, a name you might be familiar with is Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero reigned in Rome from 37 to 68 A.D. And in that time, he was very much against Christians. Um, he tried to blame the fire in Rome on Christians. And one of the ways he dealt with them, which is just totally gruesome, right? It's a good Halloween sermon, right? Um, is that he would have parties. He would throw parties for like his friends, family, influential people, whatever. And in the courtyard of the party, he would do it at night. And to provide light for the party, he would actually strap Christians to post, dip them in tar, and set them on fire, and use Christians as like human torches for his parties. So this guy was horrible to Christians. The things they were going through right around this time, leading up to 8070, like in the in the 60s, right? Not the 1960s, like the actual 60s, right? What they were going through was just immensely terrible. So I think a lot of it plays into that. Look at verses 7 through 9. It says this. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up for tribulation and put you to the death. And you will be hated 
by all nations for my name's sake. So that's something Christians were definitely going through in and around this time. And then towards the end of Nero's reign, um, Rome became kind of occupied elsewhere to where there wasn't as much Roman military presence in Jerusalem. And there was this big Jewish revolt. You can read about this in any kind of Jewish history around AD 68. The Jews just basically rose up against the Romans. They kind of took back control over the city of Jerusalem for themselves. Um, And in that, there was a lot of infighting right? There was a lot of like the zealots wanted to take control of the temple, or maybe this person wanted to rise up. And so there was just all this infighting where Jews specifically were against each other, were against Christians for sure. So lots of attack coming, not just from Rome, but from inwardly as well. And you see that reflected in verse 10, where it says this, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But then he gives this promise. He basically says things are going to get really, 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 really bad, right? But then he follows it up with this promise in verse 13. But the one who endures till the end will be saved. So Jesus is saying to them, in my opinion, in light of what's coming in uh, AD 68, 70, around that time, and the same truth is applicable to us today, right? That There's going to be times in our lives where things may get bad for us, in part because of our faith. But Jesus tells us a promise. He says, if those who endure till the end will be saved, that in the midst of any kind of persecution or difficulty we face as Christians, our hope is that if we endure, if we push through, if we continue to cling to Jesus, that in the end, things will work out for us. Kids, are you still listening? Gosh, I'm going to keep doing this because that's just affirming, right? You guys, um, listen, there's going to be times in your lives, kids, that because you follow Jesus, things are going to be more difficult for you. There's going to be times in your life where your life is going to be harder and more difficult because you're a follower of Jesus, because there's people that just don't like Jesus. They're against his teachings and what he's about, and they're against the church. And because you're associated with that, things are going to be made more difficult for you. But here's the cool thing. He tells us, Jesus tells us that's going to happen, but if we will cling to him and continue trusting and hoping in him, no matter how bad things get right in front of you, that in the end, that is going to be the best thing for you to keep clinging to Jesus through the difficulties and through the struggles. So you have the Jewish revolt that he's talking about. Um, That's kind of the, the application there for that text. And then if you move on, beginning in verse 15, You've got Jerusalem being seized. This is, again, the time when the Romans come back in and they seize the city of Jerusalem and they just are about to destroy the temple. And the first thing mentioned in this section is this really, this really ominous term. It's like there's something to this, the way it's in, in English, the way it rhymes and everything. He talks about in verse 15, the abomination of desolation. Again, this is a great Halloween sermon, right? Um, so when you see, verse 15, the abomination of desolation, Listen to this. Spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Standing in the holy place, which is the temple, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. So this abomination of desolation. Well, who is this? Well, the first thing Jesus tells us is he was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Jesus is saying, these things I'm telling you about that are going to happen, these were actually prophesied about before I was here by the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 11, verse 13 says this, 
talking about this guy, and it says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offerings, and they shall set up an abomination that makes desolate. So basically, Daniel's foretelling that someone is going to come in and completely defame and desecrate the temple. One of the things it's helpful to do, especially in the Gospels, if you don't understand a particular text, is to reference it against the other Gospels. Because sometimes Mark will tell us something that Matthew doesn't emphasize as much, or Luke, or vice versa. And so if you look up Luke, when he's talking about this whole abomination of desolation, I want you to watch how he words it, which is just a, a very good indicator that this is talking about Rome coming in and seizing the city of Jerusalem. Luke twenty-one twenty. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So again, this is why I take the approach, the approach that this is talking about the, Ro- the Roman seas of the city of Jerusalem. Um, and then in the next part of this section, you see this idea that when that happens, Christians will flee, right? You see that in verse 16. It says this. Sorry, verse 17. We'll start there. Tell us then... Oop, page turn. Like, that's not right. Wrong chapter. Let's try that again. 17. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. So things are getting worse and worse and worse, and then things get as worse as they're ever going to get. And because of that, Christians are going to flee. They're going to run. And then you have this idea that in the wake of that, right, and this terrible thing that's happening in Jerusalem, the city's being sacked, the temple's being destroyed, people are looking for leadership. Then he talks about, basically Jesus goes on to say, around that time, people are going to say they're the Messiah, but they're not. But don't listen to that. Listen to this in um, verses 26 through 27. You may have to turn a page there. It says this. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. And if they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So Jesus basically says, kind of shifts gears, I think, right here. And he goes from talking about what's going on in Jerusalem and the fall of the temple and all that. To, and by the way, that, that, that's, that is not the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. It's, it's not quite the time when he's going to come back at that point. And then he moves into verse 29, which is where the temple is destroyed. Um, and so here again, there's room for disagreement here. I'm going to read this text, and it, to you and to me, I think it, our natural inclination is to read these next three verses and think, oh, that's, that is definitely talking about the end times. That is definitely think about, talking about Christ coming back. A couple things to note on that. The word the New Testament almost always uses for Jesus' second coming, parousia, is not the word used in this text. Okay, so it's, it's kind of odd that that's not the word used here. And secondly, I want us to keep in mind that we're reading this 2,000 years later. Um, and we have to consider what this teaching would have meant and what Jews would have thought at the time Jesus was alive. And it might have a different connotation, especially, again, when he's referencing the book of Daniel. And so we're going to dive into that just a little bit here. So let me read the verses, and then we'll come back with some uh, references to Daniel. 
29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is, again, I'm saying this is, this is um, talking about the destruction of the temple, okay? The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds of the ends of one end of heaven to the other. And so a lot of the reason I... I land here is some of this arguments presented by this commentator named R.T. France. And he's not alone. He's not like out by himself. This is, this is a belief that's been held by the church for a long time, for many in the church, I should say. Um, but uh, he's a guy that's a more recent commentator that explained it. So listen to this quote by him. He says, The time of the temple's destruction will also be the time when it will become clear that the Son of Man, rejected by the leaders of the people, of his people, has been vindicated and enthroned at the right hand of God. So he's basically saying that this language is a, is a poetic way of saying the vin, vindication of Jesus, that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and the Jewish leaders completely rejected him, right? They said, we don't need you, we don't need your new teachings, we've got our God and we've got our temple, right? But then in AD 70, when the temple is destroyed and the church, meanwhile, is growing like wildfire all over the known world, it's kind of like the exclamation point of this Jesus was the Messiah. And this thing that you placed your hope in, it is now flattened and leveled because you did not get on board with the Messiah God sent and clung to this other thing, that Jesus is vindicated in that. He goes on to say, the language of 2430 is closely modeled on that of Daniel 17 through 13, 7, 13 through 14, where the coming of the Son of Man into the presence of God, not earth, speaks of vindication and enthronement. So let's look at those verses, that verse in Daniel, real quick. I'm just going to read it. I don't think this one's on the screen, but Daniel 17, 14 says this, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So you guys know that if you've been in Matthew with us, you know that so much of Jesus' teaching was his announcement that upon his arrival, the kingdom of God has come, right? So much of his teaching is emphasizing this idea that the kingdom has come. This prophecy in Daniel is being fulfilled, right? And it goes on to say in Daniel 7, 14, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So listen to that in contrast to what's happening to the Jews and their temple at the time, right? His kingdom is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and will not be destroyed. So he's saying that there's a contrast here between the kingdom that Jesus brought in is continuing to grow, continuing to spread, while that the quote-unquote kingdom of Israel, what the Jews and how they worshipped, is being destroyed, is being flattened, is being desecrated. And so there was, a, there was a struggle going on at the time of Nero and the fall of the temple, where Christians were tempted to disassoci- disassociate themselves from Jesus, because Nero and many of the other Roman emperors, they hated Christians, they persecuted Christians heavily, but they were kind of okay with the Jews at that point, right? And so there was this temptation to kind of pull away from that, and you see this all over the book of Hebrews, warning them not to do so, where the Jews are tempted to kind of pull away from their, their Christian belief 
and just revert back to Judaism, to stop identifying themselves with Jesus because that's going to make things hard for them. They might end up as a torch at Nero's party and instead just reassociate themselves with Jews' beliefs and worship at the temple. So he goes on to say, one last quote by R.T. France. He says, talking about this destruction of the temple, says, it will mark the end of the old order to be superseded by the sovereignty of the vindicated Son of Man. Okay? So, let's continue on with this last section, and then we'll make some application of all this text. So, the fig tree section right here in verse 32 says this, From the fig tree then learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts on its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. All right, so Jesus is wrapping up this, this kind of section, this transition. When you see all the stuff that I just mentioned, you know that the coming is near, that the temple is about to be destroyed. You know to run, you know to get out, right? Things are going to get bad and worse. And then verse 34, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So again, this is where I kind of bank a lot of my interpretation that Jesus is telling. All these things I just talked about, most of you are going to be alive when it happens, right? So if Jesus is talking about a second coming, this verse is kind of hard to deal with. Now, admittedly, there's, there's, there's other things that are maybe seem like a stretch or difficult to deal with from the perspective I take. Um, but this is one of the reasons I take the perspective I do, because if Jesus is saying these things are not going to happen, these things are going to happen during the lifetime of this generation, it's one more indication that he's talking about things that happened while they were alive, right? Like the destruction of the temple in the year AD 70. And then 36, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And then Nick is going to take us through the next section next week, but I do want to dip into one more verse outside of the ones I've assigned this week, verse 36, because this is when I think he transitions from talking about the destruction of the temple to his second coming. Because remember, the disciples asked two questions. What will the signs be of this? And then when are you going to return? And this is when I think this transition takes place. He says, but, hear that contrast word there, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So then he goes on to talk about being ready for the second coming of Christ. And so if you think about it that way, he's, he's basically told them, here's all the ways you're going to know when this stuff is going to happen. But concerning the second coming of Jesus, no one's going to know when that's going to happen. No one's going to know the day or the hour. So you may have a different interpretation. That's fine. Um, Let's consider some things we all agree on in light of this text and Jesus' second coming and what that means for us today. And so here are just real quick five things that where there may be a lot of disagreement among evangelical Christians on these other things, five things that we all agree pretty much across the board are true about the second coming of Jesus. One is that it will be physical or visible. That Jesus is not going to come back in a figurative way, right? Or somehow spiritually but not seen, right? That as a lightning stretches from the east from the, to the west, right? Some of that language like this is going to be known. This is going to be visible. When Jesus comes back, it is going to be clear. It's going to be known. Secondly, it's going to be sudden. That I was talking to Steve Hay about this between services. It seems like every 
four or five years, there's some guy that has figured it out, right? And now he's predicting, he knows exactly the day and the hour Jesus was going to come back. And even though he clearly says, you're not going to be able to figure that out. But those things can be tempting for us, right? Those, those, those little, whenever someone starts claiming like, yeah, yeah, there's all this stuff you've grown up your whole life believing about church, but now I've got this thing, right? And if you get this thing, then you're really going to go deeper in understanding of truth. Like, man, I can't stress this enough. Like what Paul tells Timothy as he's training this pastor is, hey, remember the faith that your grandmother and mother had and cling to that. that. That's what you need to cling to. Not some new teaching, not some numerological explanation of doing these math between these different verses and scriptures and coming up with them, Jesus is going to come back. Like you're going to nail that down. If someone is using that kind of language, church, please, please don't believe that. That, that kind of stuff is not of Scripture. That kind of stuff is not of the gospel. It's people trying to be wise in things that have no value against fighting against the flesh. And so his return is going to be sudden. It's going to be something that surprises everyone when it happens. It's not going to be something that you can prepare for right up until the day it happens. The application is it's going to happen at some point. So always be ready because we don't know when it's going to happen. Which leads to our third one, which is imminent. That even though we believe that Jesus has not come back yet, that we also believe that Jesus' intention and some of the cryptic language here that he gave on these second coming was intended to leave the church always thinking it could happen any day, right? That Jesus never intended for there to be a time in the church where they thought, oh no, we got a couple thousand more years for that happens, we're fine, Right? The point of Jesus' teachings in the next section we're going to look at is it could happen any day. That was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today that he wants his church to live with this anticipation and expectation that at any point now, Jesus could return. His return is imminent. Fourthly, his return is universal. It's once and for all. And then lastly, his return is going to be joyful and terrible. Joyful for those who are eagerly awaiting his coming and terrible for those who have rejected him as the Messiah. It ought, to, it ought to scare us a little bit, make us a little uncomfortable at least when we talk about the second coming, right? When we talk about Jesus' second coming, we're talking about the God of the universe who, who created us and has expectations of what we believe and how we should live, that this God who has given us this free will, this ability to choose to follow Jesus or to reject Jesus, to choose to submit to God's authority or choose to reject and walk away from him and be our own God and do our own thing, the God who has given us that option and that choice and that freedom will one day return and there will be a day of judgment where all of us will give an answer and account to God for what we believed and how we lived. That that day is going to come. And when we think about that day, it's tempting to think, well, gosh, I hope, I hope when that light shines on me, when I'm put under the, the magnifying glass, so to speak, of that, of that judgment, of that accountability for what I've chosen to do with the life and the time and, and the season that God has given me on this earth for, to answer for that, I hope that, I hope that the good outweighs the bad, man. I know I've done some bad things, but I think I've done a lot of really good things. I'm pretty nice to people. I'll pull over on the side of the road to help someone, right? I'm a, I'm a good person. I think God will find me in good standing. But the reality is that every 
one of us have done enough bad things and rejected God enough that we fall short of his standard. And the only way any of us will be welcomed and accepted and for that day to be a joyful thing for us is if we have hidden ourselves in Christ and are counting on his righteousness. If we are believing that, yeah, we didn't do right, we didn't do good, we failed, we rejected God in so many ways throughout our lives, but God was so gracious, he sent his son Jesus to take the penalty for those sins, that if I would believe in him, that he would deal with those sins justly, remove them from me, not count them against me, and accept me as his perfect son or daughter, covered not in my own good works, but in the righteousness of Christ on my behalf. And on that day, I will be found in him, trusting in him, resting in him, banking on him, and because of his sacrifice, God will accept me. But for those that have not placed their faith in Jesus and followed him, that day will be a day of terror and judgment for rejecting God and his son. And so I want us to reckon with that, and I want us to to sit with that this morning as we talk about the second coming of Jesus and what that will be like for us. And if you have any shred of doubt or any question about that, please come talk to me or come talk to someone else at this church, maybe a pastor or someone you've seen on the stage or someone that you know is a leader in the church or maybe just someone that you're next to that brought you here this morning. If you have any doubt about that, let's talk about that because it's a day that's coming for all of us and it makes us a little uncomfortable. Kids, talk to your parents about that. If you have any doubt of what's going to happen to you when Jesus comes back, have that conversation with them, okay? Guys, please pray with me. God, I thank you for this, this great text that I would have never picked to preach on, um, but that uh, we've come to as we've walked through the book of Matthew. God, we know that all of your, your word is profitable and beneficial for us, and we trust that. Um, God, we trust that these things that you've said are important, that we, we need to strive to, to understand them and to dig into them. And God, I pray that as we work through those or other disagreements or other texts that we come across that the meaning may not be completely clear, that we would just press in and cling to you, um, clinging to the things we know are true and wrestling with the things that maybe aren't quite 100% clear. I pray in Christ's name, amen.